you came to church today to be disturbed, you came to the right place. How many of you came here to be disturbed today? You are disturbed if you put your hand up. Um, there were those in the first service who did the same thing. We are going to be disturbed uh, according to what Jesus has to say in the 13th and 14th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. You can join me in turning there if you would like. And we are going to see two very disturbing responses to the truth. So two very disturbing, troubling, unsettling responses to the truth. It's going to be in a spicy context. Uh, the spicy context will be one of scandal, sex, and murder. Uh, you probably didn't come here to learn about that either today, uh, but we are going to hear about scandal, sex, and murder, but it's going to simply provide a context. It is a family show, by the way. It's going to be fine. Um, we'll only read the text. We won't go much further than that. But that will provide the context where Jesus speaks the truth like no one has ever heard before as the truth, and he is utterly rejected by his own. That will be a disturbing response to the truth. And then we will also uh, see that John the Baptist, who also spoke the truth, um, second best truth teller maybe in the world, not the ultimate one, uh, but he as the one who would be the forerunner to Jesus, who would be a great prophet pointing to Jesus, he will speak the truth as well and he will be rejected and it will cost his life. And so that will be very, very disturbing also. So prepare yourself to be disturbed. So first response, the response to Jesus that's so disturbing, uh, we'll find in Matthew 13 at the end. So beginning in verse 53, if you'd look with me as we begin. And when Jesus had finished these parables, so from chapter 13 earlier, he went away from there, he went away from the Galilee region, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So he's in the Galilee region, depending on where he is, 25 mile or so walk to the west, southwest, and so now he's in Nazareth. Notice it does say what Matthew's been saying quite frequently, it's their synagogue, and I've mentioned it multiple times, probably on purpose to create distance because what they're about is they've lost sight of what the Bible would have them to uh, think of. Uh, and so they've become corrupt. They've become perverse. They've become um, off-centered, if you will. And so it's theirs. So there's that emphasis. And also notice when we see this, uh, he teaches them in their synagogue hometown, it's going to be Nazareth, Nazareth, wrong side of the tracks. Okay. It's where you don't want to be from. Remember earlier, one of the disciples, could anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it's my least favorite place in Israel today. Um, and so for good reason, maybe, I don't know. But back then, it's known as wrong side of the tracks. A little, small little town, insignificant little town. It's not where you want to be from unless you're Jesus, who is the great one who comes from a surprising place. Maybe you remember chapter 2, verse 23 of Matthew's gospel account. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So he would, he would come from weakness. He would come from uh, the wrong place, if you will, but he will be the ultimate great one. So make no mistake about it. It's not because of his heritage. It's not because of his family. It's not because he grew up in the right place. No, it has to do with his person and his work. And so if you didn't remember that, perhaps 
that jogged your memory. In my notes, I have things about jokes about a town on the other side of the river, but I'm not going to do that because my wife is from there. Um, and she's watching online right now, so I have to be careful. <laughs> he goes home. You th- you'd think there would be a welcome, right? You would think there would be, you know, on the, 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 to- the town sign, home of Jesus, the Messiah, the miracle worker, the one we've all been waiting for. You'd think it would be that way. You'd think it would be that way today, and it's not that way. But notice what it says in verse 54. So that they were astonished. Well, that's a pretty good response. I I was making it sound negative. I got ahead of myself. They were astonished. Their minds were blown. They were so impressed. This is really positive. That's the right response to Jesus' teaching. He's teaching in their synagogue, and they're astonished. Let's keep going. It's still good. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Absolutely astonishing, right? Amazing. Where did he get this wisdom? Wisdom, probably an all-encompassing word. These things that, that are from God. He, he's, he's like someone we've never heard before. And if you think about it, that would be true theologically. But it would also be true if he's the, the perfect one who's without sin. The all-knowing one who is wisdom itself. I mean, he, better than Socrates when it comes to, to, to articulation, Right? Better than any great speaker you, you, you've ever heard. Think of your favorite public speaker ever, whether it's Churchill or whoever. Jesus was the best speaker ever because he's perfect. So no wonder they're astonished. But, but theologically, he's also going to be teaching the right thing. He himself knows the scriptures because they're his scriptures so he can explain them and unpack them and exposit them like nobody ever could, Right? He can connect the dots as the ultimate one. So they're impressed. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? There's a similar kind of response. The people were, maybe it doesn't use the word astonished, but they were astonished because he taught them not like their teachers, but as one having, remember what the word is? Authority. He wasn't quoting this rabbi or that rabbi to gain credibility. He could just speak and make things clear, and people were astonished. So, Nazareth, good work. That's the right response, right? That's the right, the right response to Jesus is this response, at least so far. And I, I would like to point out, before we move on, because the response is not going to be so positive, that they're responding positively here because of the facts. They're astonished. They're not fanboys and fangirls, if that's a thing. Okay? They're going to not like him. But I wanted to stress to you the undeniable reality that he stands out as different and they're astonished. So when they're being objective, paying attention to facts, they're getting it right. They're getting it right. But then the questions come. Kind of rapid fire assault sense based upon how it's going to go. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Implied answer is yes. Is not his mother called Mary? Yes. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Yes. And are not all his sisters with us? Yes, 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 yes. So hold the presses, right? 
Wait just a minute, we're astonished, but isn't he from around here? Which is kind of funny, right? This is like, I mean, they're from the wrong place. (laughs) And they're looking down on people who are from where they're from. I mean, this is like our old neighbors that we used to have when we were first married. They were from Iowa, but they had a list of 99 Council Bluffs jokes. Oh, there I said it. I should not. But you know, right? Never mind. (laughs) I get myself in trouble. The point is, verse 56 at the end, where then did this man get all these things? Where did they come from? This, This is the ultimate question, right? This is the great question. This is a moment of truth. How in the world did this happen? We've never heard anything. No one has ever heard anything like this before. Their their minds are blown. Where did he get it? Where, Where did it come from? And here's their opportunity, right? They're stepping up to the plate. Time. Moment of truth. They should say, it comes from God. It comes from above. It comes from heaven. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one. He's the one. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. He's the one who will rule and reign forever. He will protect us. He will provide for us. He will be the one, to quote 121, because I always do, to save his people from their sins. Oh! That would be the right response. And some people have responded that way. And it says in verse 57, and they took offense at him. And they took offense at him. Swing and a miss, right? Reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 11. He comes to his own. And what? His own receive him not. In a microcosm, but in a profound sense, that's what's happening here. They took offense. I like the word that he uses because it's memorable and it will be memorable for you. Scandalizo. Why is it memorable? Because it sounds like the English word, scandal. They're scandalized. They are scandalized. It's the word that's often used, the opposite of belief, the opposite of trust, right? Where, could, where did this come from? If, if it's come from God, they're going to trust in Him to be their Savior. But instead, what they do is they're scandalized by Him. Can't be true, can't be true, can't be true, can't be true. Will not trust, will not trust, will not trust, will not believe, will not believe, will not believe. And here's my question for you. Why? Well, because. Really, that's the answer they end up giving. They've heard, they've seen. So it's not like, well, because of rationality. Because we are students of reason. Because we are logical. Because we are objective. We are historians. It's not it. That's not how the narrative unfolds. So dear Mr. and Mrs. Miss and Mr. Whatever you prefer. Christians, remember that. Sometimes we act as if Christianity is, again, as I so often say, faith in faith. Or some sort of leap of faith. This is not that. They see, they hear, they witness. And if they, if they weren't even experiencing it themselves, they've heard from other places, but they are experiencing it themselves. And so what do they do? Here, here's the moment. Where does he come from? Oh God. Okay. We're going to trust in him. He's the Messiah. Nope. Scandalized. 
Why don't you believe in him? Because. Yeah, but why? Because. It's really strange. It's really strange. Now, I suppose you could fill in the blanks because it doesn't fit my current worldview. Because it doesn't fit what my very favorite professor taught me. Because it doesn't fit what my favorite author says. Because it doesn't fit with what my mom and dad taught me. Because it doesn't fit with my favorite... Because if I do believe this, it's going to cost me relationships. Because if... So we could fill in the becauses. But really, I, I just say because, because there's, their, their, their response doesn't... It's not, it's not rational. It's something else. Because I feel different. But it's not something fact-based. So remember that. And it does really help us to, to, to see the disturbing response to truth by some. This is disturbing. This is where we start talking about insanity. Not coming to grips with factual realities. That's insane. Spiritual insanity is going on here. It's not unreasonable to believe in Jesus for these people. It's reasonable for these people to believe in Jesus. And they don't. Pretty weird. Pretty strange. Pretty troubling. Calling good bad, ultimately. Scandalized. I think you know and I know that the truth of Jesus from him and about him still scandalizes people. And it's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because there's not enough history. Why don't you trust in Jesus who can save you from your sins? Because. And you fill in the blank. But it's not actually reasonable. So I hope he's not a scandal to you. Then it says in verse 57, if we keep going, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a scandal. It doesn't make sense. Jesus perhaps is quoting a, a proverb, but whether he is or he isn't, he's saying something that's he's saying is true, but it's, it's scandalizingly true. It doesn't make sense. Prophets aren't welcome in their own hometown. People should be welcome in their own hometown, especially if they're famous. Oh, how about this? Especially if they're a prophet. If you're really a prophet, you speak the, the revelation of God. You speak the truth. You're esteemed. You're, 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 you're better than a celebrity. And Jesus says, I'm not welcome here and I'm a prophet. This actually speaks to Israel's bad acting history. Oftentimes prophets who theoretically out there somewhere conceptually we would esteem, you know. But when they get in our face calling us to repentance, call it telling us what's true from God, well, we, don't, we, we don't want to hear that. It's too close to home. You're not welcome here. 
Prophets not welcome except in their own hometown. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of insane. It's scandalizing. Famous people are typically welcome, right? Home of, right? We make signs about it. We go see the spots. I learned, because I looked up famous people from Omaha this week, that if you want to on Airbnb, you too can stay in the boyhood home of Warren Buffett. You might want to do it. You might get the anointing, right? <laughs> we, 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 we honor famous people because they're famous, because they've achieved something great. And that makes a fair amount of sense. People do it around the world if they do something good. Here, prophet speaks for God, not welcome. That's scandalous. That's, that's, that's a disturbing response to the truth. And we see it happening here, a very disturbing response to the truth. Then the result comes, and it's a sad one. This is too bad. This is sad. It says in verse 58, And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he's going to withhold good from those people because they're scandalized by the truth. By the way, withholding in the Bible is a form of what? starts with a J. Yeah, it's a form of judgment. It's a form of judgment. Instead of blessing them with goodness, even helping people who are in need there, which is what the leaders should be for, instead they reject Jesus and so they actually cut off what would be good for the people that they lead. In the name of? Because. It just can't be. It's so irrational, so bizarre, so troubling, disturbing. But it does encourage me in one sense. It encourages me in this sense. It encourages me to help. It helps me understand even today why people don't believe the truth about Jesus. Now, maybe they don't know the truth and maybe they need to actually learn things uh, and gain information. But ultimately, the reason somebody's going to be scandalized by Jesus and not believe in him is not because there are no facts. At the end of the day, ultimately, these people have the facts and they reject. And that. It doesn't encourage me, but it helps me to understand the world I live in because I do want people to believe in Jesus because I want them to be set free and I want them to have hope and I want them to be encouraged and I want them to have the Spirit of God working in their life. What's scandalous, the truth from Christ, is also the power of God unto salvation. But ultimately, God has to work in the heart to bring that about. Ready to move on to another unsettling, troubling account. Okay, I hope you are because we're going to move on now. The scene changes and now we have the second disturbing response, the response to John by Herod. And I'm going to call John the representative of the truth because he speaks the truth, we're going to see. And so it's a disturbing response to the truth. Remember, John is going to proclaim the truth about God, what God requires. He's going to point people to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's symbolic representative of truth because of what he proclaims. Then chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So Herod the Tetrarch uh, the, one, the ruler of a fourth. This is one of the sons of Herod the Great, and he has been given a portion of the land to, to govern. Um, 
technically he only had a third. We won't get into the details. Um, but his label is he's the fourth, fourth a ruler of a fourth tetrarch. We know he has a bad history, right, from our gospel account because his dad was the one who had the murder of the innocents, who was so insecure and such a petty tyrant that he wanted to have all the young boys executed for fear that Jesus, the Messiah, the King would be born. And so he has a bad upbringing um, and he's going to live up to his father, if you will, and it, it too is going to be bad. Um, they're not kings, but they like to be called kings. And people are happy to call them kings if it means they're going to be nice to them. And so he will be called a king, but think more of a governor. There's, there's only one king when you're talking about Rome. Uh, and it certainly would not be someone who's in the Middle East. Okay, So there would only be one Caesar, uh, and it wouldn't be this guy. But there's a lot, there are allowances. If these guys like to be called king, let them be called king. Leave well enough alone uh, to keep the peace in the region. And so this egomaniac so-called king governor is going to really show his badness, if you will. Verse 2 says, And he said to his servants, I'm not very good with a shaky voice unless I'm really nervous, actually, and I'm not really nervous right now. Um, but let's think shaky voice. Okay. The, 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 this, this, this is John the Baptist. He, he, he's, he's been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are, are, are working him. I didn't do a very good job, but you got the idea. He's afraid. He's, he's in a panic. He, superstition is going to kick in. Some religiosity, some superstition, and the fact that a year and a half or so ago, he had John the Baptist executed. Now he's hearing about the fame of Jesus, and he's drawing wrong conclusions, but Jesus is famous, and Jesus is doing extraordinary things, and he's being haunted, perhaps, in his mind by the ghost of John, ooh, right? Ghost of John the Baptist. What have I done? He's uneasy. He's unsettled in his conscience. A parallel account, Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So it wasn't just in his own mind. Other people were drawing similar kinds of conclusions. Uh-oh. I like this. I like nervous, petty tyrants sucking their thumb. And that's what he's doing. Twisting his hair, sucking his thumb, nervous. I'm just going to admire that for a minute. It's kind of nice. Here's why. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Here's the spicy part. His brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Oh. That's what's going on. Let's observe that John has got a backbone. John is a true prophet of God. John is committed to preaching God's law so that the gospel makes sense? Why would you need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world if you don't have sin? 
And so John is doing what he should be doing. And I admire John so much here and want to learn from his boldness. John, who didn't actually hear what you heard last week, lived it out in principle. And that's this. Like someone who discovers great treasure in a field, they sell all that they have or need to sell to buy that one field to gain that great treasure. Whatever it takes for me to be part of the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to do it. The merchant who has all the pearls and gets rid of all of them because he's discovered the most valuable one of all. Remember, that's what we heard from Jesus. He likens his kingdom to that. John didn't hear those words, but John understood those concepts. Therefore, he's willing to put his life on the line and it is going to cost him his life to tell the truth about what God requires so that there's a platform to explain what God provides in a Savior whose name is Jesus. You got to like John. John gets it. John gets it. And John is a great example in that sense. I'm thankful. He's going to pay a great price, but his eternal destiny is secure. I like John. It is not lawful for you to have her. He's calling out their sexual immorality. You're not obeying God's law, therefore it's sin. Now, I want to share with you the complex, bizarre, spicy, weird, perverse, strange details. And I have to read them because You can't make this stuff up. This reminds me of my grandmother watching soap operas like all day long, right? And knowing all the ins and outs and all the entanglements and all of the stuff. Here we go. This is Herodias, okay? This is Herodias. He's going to do it for her. This lady, I'm quoting Leon Morris here. This lady was a granddaughter of Herod the Great being the daughter of his son, Aristobulus. She married her uncle, Herod Philip, who is to be distinguished from the Tetrarch Philip of Luke 3.1, who was half-brother to Herod Antipas. Herod Philip and Herodias had a daughter, Salome. Those are the ones in the scene here. Herod Antipas married a Nabataean princess whose name is not known, the daughter of King Eratos, but he and Herodias fell in love. There's a lot more. They agreed to marry and Herodias left his half-brother Herod Philip. As Matthew says, she was the wife of his brother Philip. She was also his niece. (laughs) Right? There's more. The daughter of Eretus got wind of what was happening and fled to her father who promptly went to war with Herod and defeated him, which provoked Roman intervention. It was a tangled and complex situation. Yeah, do you think? But what is clear, what is clear is that the marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias was contrary to Old Testament law. And in simpler terms from another resource, thus Herodias married her uncle Herod Philip and had a daughter Salome. Later Salome, Salome 
married Philip, the Tetrarch, half-brother to Herod Philip. She thus became both aunt and sister-in-law to her own mother. (laughs) End of quotation. (laughs) So thankfully, the inspired scriptures, Matthew, you know, lest we all lose our ever-loving minds uh, and be distracted like I just distracted you, just cuts to the chase. But there's a lot of spice going on. There, there, there's a lot of, I don't even know what, how to describe it. Pretty bizarre, huh? Scandalous, confusing. But Herodias is going to take great offense that John the Baptist preaches law. Again, I remind you, gospel doesn't make sense if you don't preach law. And he calls her out for her sexual immorality. And her response is going to be a big, bold, how dare you? If she were living today, right, at this banquet that we're going to see, uh, she would have love is love flags on her banquet table. How dare you tell me what's right and what's wrong? This is what I think is right. And I'm in charge here. Am I lying? I'm not lying. Salvation makes no sense if there's not a category for sin. John the Baptist is preaching about sin, so salvation has a category. Verse 5 says, And though we wanted to put him to, though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him, John, to be a prophet. And so he's going to be the politician that he is and wants to have the peace kept and so uh, he's not going to kill him but he wants to kill him and by the way mark's gospel account tells us a little bit more information that's kind of interesting it says this for herod feared john knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe when he heard him he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly so herod antipas is conflicted right because something about what John says is resonating because he makes sense. He speaks the truth and truth makes sense. It's reasonable. But it, there's something about it that it makes him want to kill him because he's making sense and taking the light of sense and shining it, shining it on his sexual nonsense. And so he's a troubled individual, this Herod Tetrarch. And then it gets really creepy. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. That's the creeper uncle that nobody wants. He's the creepy uncle. The text doesn't say, based upon the word that's used for her, uh, some scholars would say the girl's probably between the ages of 12 and 14. Uh, Mark's gospel account would have us to know that Herod invited all of his guy buddies, all of his guy friends, military leaders and such. And they're all there and they love watching, not groups dancing like the Jews would do, but they're watching the young girl dance. I won't say any more. Not a good look. Creepy. She's getting the wrong kind of attention from the wrong people. And drunk on lust and pride or pride because his friends are there, look what it says in verse 6. 
so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark's gospel account, up to half of my kingdom I'll give you. That's why I would say he is drunk on lust and or pride because you don't say things like that when you have your senses about you. But he does because he doesn't have his senses about him. This is awful. This is meant to be disgusting. Whatever you want, and it won't be a pony, and it won't be a tea party. Verse 8 says, Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Don't kill him Jewish style. Don't kill him Roman style. Kill him like you would in military battle. Chop his head off. And I want it here. It's disgusting. It's meant to be. It's ruinous. It's meant to be. Troubling. Meant to be. So he speaks the truth. Let me remind you. The truth of God's law is good, righteous, holy, beautiful. What's actually good for people, for human flourishing? And her response to the truth is, he needs to be executed. And it needs to happen now. I'll have no more of it. It's a troubling response to the truth, is what it is. Execute John, the forerunner of Jesus the prophet who speaks the truth, the greatest one who ever lived up until the time of Jesus, Matthew eleven eleven. Nine says, and the king was sorry. Now he's sober, isn't he? Sober. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Verse 10 says, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says it is at a place called Machaerus. And there was a palace there. And so it would make sense if it is there. Josephus seems to be right because you have a palace at a place where you have someone imprisoned. And so it can happen and it can happen like that. Verse 11 says, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Pretty jaded girl, if she was at all pleased with that, at the age of 12 to 14-ish. Given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So the hopeful part there is the last verse, right? I must decrease he must increase there's been dialogue with them back and forth he sent his disciples to jesus at different times we've seen that and now what do they do now that their leader is gone they go and tell jesus i don't think it's reading too much into it that it would make sense now that they would go and be with jesus is the hopeful ending of it all pretty bizarre stuff huh really quite bizarre really quite disturbing really quite troubling sin is nonsensical and it causes people to do crazy things probably every one of us in this room actually but unrestrained by the spirit of God it causes us to do really crazy things and apart from God's intervention really insane things the most insane of all is hearing, seeing experiencing the truth teller the good one 
and being scandalized by it and saying, I reject because. It just doesn't make any sense. I've been watching, uh, I, I hear an ad coming uh, on the radio lots of mornings. I don't even know what it's for, but they're, they're poking fun at online reviews. And they talk about, you know, and it's funny humor. It's, well, they told me they were going to charge me this much, and they charged me less. Liars. Like, it's pretty funny, right? Because there's, there's something about it that resonates with us. Because some people are just so petty and ridiculous, and they miss the whole point, and it's just a bunch of nonsense. I realize these are much heavier, weightier matters. But it makes no sense at all to know the truth, see the truth, experience the truth, be engaged with the truth, and to be scandalized by it. It's tragic. It's tragic. You have to know my prayer for you is that you would not be scandalized by it. That the gospel wouldn't scandalize you, but it would be the power of God unto salvation in your life. In 1989, I think, was the year when someone had the audacity to question the sincerity of my religion. And I was offended by that. I was scandalized by that. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. In the short run, I wasn't thankful. Because in the long run, at least it was so unsettling that what was scandalizing actually became the power of God unto salvation. And I realize that I'm talking to people who many of you share the same kind of story. Let's remember that it it is insane to reject the truth. But let's also remember that the truth not only scandalizes it does bring about salvation in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls by God's sovereign grace. And so our desire is to proclaim the truth. We want to be like John and preach the law, Jesus and preach the law, so that the gospel makes sense. And so we preach the gospel certainly, absolutely, also. But we have to know that there's going to be responses negative. But our prayer and desire is that there are ultimately responses that are positive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for an opportunity for us to learn some history, to learn what has happened in the world before our time so that we might live lives in our time that bring glory and honor to you. You're kind and gracious and merciful. Thank you so much for that in our lives. May we live for the glory of Christ fearlessly like these two people we've learned about today, ultimately because of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.